The following is a conversation with Ashok D. Pandey, former professor and researcher in earthquake engineering at IIT Roorkee. His work majorly involved in analysis of structures. He began working on projects related to Iduki Dam, Narora Atomic Power Plant, Power of Structures, and the Tron move to earthquake analysis of dam structures and fatigue analysis of railway structures. He had been a great teacher and a mentor to many students in the institute and beyond. Personally, I took his course on numerical methods for dynamic systems during my masters at IIT Roorkee. Quick mention of sponsors followed by my thoughts on the current episode. Rage Coffee, the makers of some delicious coffee. Please check out the sponsors in the description to get a discount and support this podcast. It's important for the young researchers stepping into a PhD program to understand the process of nurturing themselves to become an independent thinker and a researcher. You can check out the previous episode with Ashok D. Pandey where we explored in length about original thinking, education and academia. Coming back, in this short conversation with Ashok D. Pandey, we will talk about academic research and touch upon a few common pitfalls researchers or grad students walk into during the course of their thesis. If you enjoy this thing, follow on Spotify, support it on Patreon, review with 5 stars on Apple Podcasts to help it to reach more audience who may benefit from listening to it. And connect with me on Twitter at Gautam RTY, G-A-U-T-H-A-M-R-T-Y. I appreciate that you have given us some time to talk to you through this podcast, to what this conversation might bring to your job or life as a researcher and a nice human being. Here's the conversation with Ashok D. Pandey. Hope you enjoy it. There are a bunch of topics we covered in the previous episodes. Yeah. One of those which we didn't go into was about researchers. Yeah. And this this is going to be for someone who is a grad student or a, in a research field, you know, like an apprentice research, especially a PhD. So on those lines. Yeah. I think uh, to begin with, when uh, most of the people apply or get selected for a research position, right? It's very seldom, I think, it's very, very rare that an individual has a clear-cut idea of what he wants to do. The only thing that is very clear to him is that he wants that qualification. That degree is important. The topic or the area in which he's going to work is invariably decided by the supervisor. And a student may have a background which he can take advantage of. But there will always be a certain amount of, you know, sort of uh, patching up on his background that is necessary to meet the research targets right? for him to get started. For example? For example, let us say somebody comes to do earthquake engineering here, right? He wants to do his PhD in earthquake engineering. Now his background is he has done ME structures, etc., they may have had a course, you know, Introduction to Earthquake Engineering, or it's equivalent, okay. right? But that is not adequate. Okay. Right? So, he comes here, he takes a course, right, uh, on, let's say, Structural Dynamics, maybe a design course, and, uh, of course, some amount of seismology is necessary. So then that, that's the kind of background patching up that I'm talking about. So is there a pitfall there? No, it's hmm. perfectly in order. Hmm. It all depends on uh, the research objective the supervisor has in mind yeah. and the student's background. Right? 
In fact, the two of them uh, sort of uh, take a decision on what courses would be beneficial. So that becomes the starting point, really. Where can things go wrong at that stage? At that stage? Uh, I, I think, you know, what can really go wrong is that if a candidate is weak in an area, he needs to tell his supervisor about it rather than, you know, try to project himself as somebody who knows everything under the sun. No, that's not possible. So I, I think the starting point is to be honest with the supervisor. It's like being honest with a doctor. You go to a doctor because you have some problem. And if you don't explain your symptoms to him properly, then he won't be able to treat you in the correct manner. So that is, uh, I think, one of the first major pitfalls. Yeah, when you just begin. Yes. Okay. And to be honest with the supervisor, you know, it sets the ball rolling for a very healthy relationship. You know, a sort of a mutual trust. Because uh, you may be doing whatever work you're doing, but your supervisor is in the driver's seat, right? He's going to decide on, let, let us say, the research work isn't going in the original direction as well as it was expected, then you would need to sort of divert a little bit, right? That decision is taken by the supervisor. So a certain amount of trust just has to be there. That was one of the first listings, uh, hurdles, so to say. This is about when you just pick up on, you know, the journey of uh, yeah, grad student. You're starting out, you okay. know, with your research work. That means I'm talking more at, uh, say, a PhD level. Okay. Mm. Right? Because masters, you've got the courses all chalked out and yeah. things like that. It's only towards your dissertation mm. that uh, you would concentrate in a narrower field. Okay. Right? But when you're starting out your PhD, it's, it's not a generalized thing. You have to narrow down the scope. So once that, let us say, pitfall is over, it's not uh, a very healthy situation, I would say, or not a very happy situation for the research scholar. Why? Because now he is stepping into unknown territory. And bound to have a lot of uncertainties, you know. It can shake one's confidence immensely, especially when the supervisor is talking about a particular paper, right? And uh, the student has gone through the paper and hasn't been able to understand a word, right? right? It once again shakes your confidence, right? That at this rate, will I make it? All of us have gone through it, right? Mm. So, how to handle that situation? For one, a lot depends on the supervisor. If your supervisor can assure you that that's how everybody starts, that's how everybody feels, mm. that's how I felt in the beginning, mm. right? It gives the student some consolation. It helps him back on his feet. Because what happens, the student puts the supervisor on a pedestal that he knows everything. I know nothing, <laughs> right? So if the supervisor is able to convince him that, no, that's how everybody starts, and guides him as to where he needs to focus his energies, then I think uh, 
meaningful research can be initiated. Of course, there are some of the areas the supervisor might indicate, there are certain areas that the research scholar himself has to identify and make good, you know, a good amount of effort on the, the side also to make good that portion. That means any lapses in his knowledge, any gray areas in his knowledge, right, that would need patching up. Like, for example, uh, a supervisor might talk about a particular algorithm, mm. right? Now the student hears that algorithm for the first time. Obviously, he has to go right from the basics of that area, right, to come up to that particular algorithm, its advantages, disadvantages, right, its limitations. All those things he'll have to pick up on his own. The supervisor is not going to tell him that, look, this, this is how you start. Of course, a certain amount of pointers may be given, but the student has to make an effort on his own. And also here it brings back that it's important to start from ground zero rather than, you know, fixing the things at, you know, at a superficial level. And yes. even that can go wrong, backfire. Yes. Because what happens is that uh, there is a, uh, a fairly general tendency to start with an advanced topic without having appropriate background. A person can use an algorithm, right, without understanding its basics. I mean, it has been done so frequently and, and still continues to um, be done, I suppose. But what happens is that in the defense, if somebody asks that uh, in detail about the algorithm and its applicability to the candidate's problem, I, I find that the candidates in those cases are unable to answer. Now that immediately uh, creates a bad impression that uh, what about the rest of the work, mm. right? Is the contribution that he is claiming really his or is it just a whitewash on the whole thing? So then that's one of the issues, you know. And I think if a candidate is motivated enough then definitely he would bridge the gap himself. He would realize that that is something he needs to do, right? Approach the topics or specific areas right from fundamentals so that he is able to understand better. And oftentimes it has so happened that they have come across, the research scholars have come across a novel way of approaching the problem. Right. So, uh, like I said, Missing a learning opportunity, you know, and that shouldn't be there. Now, when I look back at my own experiences, there were times when I got stuck with a problem, right? And uh, I spent a fair amount of time you know, just feeling sorry for myself, feeling frustrated. If somehow that time spent in feeling sorry for oneself and feeling frustrated was converted into something more productive, it would have been better. And, uh, you know, there, like for example, I remember clearly about six weeks I'd spent on one of the integrals. And during that six weeks, I couldn't think of doing anything else. Hmm. It was that six-week period which subsequently, uh, the lesson I learned from it was that if I break up my activities into four, five, 
three, four, whatever be the number, Tasks. you know, whatever you can handle, uh, which are, you know, sort of uncorrelated. Then if I'm stuck in one particular area, I'm at least making progress in the others. So one and a half to two hours of concentrated work in one specific area, and then you take a breather, take a break, right, and then move to another area. So that way, you are making progress at at least, if you split your listing activities into five areas, let's say, and you're stuck in three, you're still making progress in two. And that is important because a lot depends on how you feel about what you are achieving. If, if you feel that you're not achieving anything, right, then the situation gets a little bit morbid. You start feeling sorry for yourself. You start feeling frustrated, whatever. And you waste time moping about it. So in order to get over that, you need to really split your activities into four or five areas. For example, uh, you have a program to develop. Fine, that's one slot, right? What about bibliography and things like that? What about uh, chapters, etc., etc., right? So right from the initial stages, if you can split your work, right? That means, okay, I'm going to spend uh, hour and a half every day on numerical analysis, right? Because I'm going to use it subsequently. Things like that. So that way, you know, there will always be some activities where you are referring to material, making a summary of it or whatever, right? Now, there, the frustration is going to be on a lower order, right? Set yourself a daily target, see if you can meet it. And if you can't meet it, it's not the end of the world. No. There would be days when you would be able to meet your targets much faster and then make good the loss. So that way, one keeps progressing on a day-to-day -day basis. Right. And that is important. Making a slope of consistent progress. Yes. I mean, you may be stuck in one particular area, right? But you're making progress in three areas, let's say four areas, whatever it is. Your feel-good factor should always be high. Remember, the most important thing for any individual is the individual himself. So, one has to really take care of himself to be able to function to his optimal. After the first step where students begin to uh, build a healthy relationship with the supervisor in terms of you know telling how honestly talking about his background and what he can do and what he cannot do right and moving beyond that yeah so the next step mostly comes out picking out the topic for research yeah what are the good steps according to you and what are the bad See, where things can go wrong yeah it's like this that uh, that is one stage where the supervisor has uh, maximum say the student can hardly contribute anything at that stage okay right but like i said that if you have a wrapper of mutual trust right then uh, obviously the supervisor is going to assess your strengths and weaknesses right and point you in the right direction because uh, most of the supervisors already have a picture in mind as to what is the end result they would like to see on the basis of your research effort, right? And 
never assume that it is the research uh, scholar's solo effort, really. No, the supervisor is just as tense, just as concerned, and just as interested. In fact, uh, to a lot of my students, I would say that uh, right in the beginning when they started working under me for their masters, I would say, my interest in your work will be directly proportional to yours. True. The more interest you take, believe me, the more interested I'm going to be in your work. Why? Because the problem has been framed by me. I am interested in the outcome. Right? Mm. So if two people can work together, that, that would be a better option. And that is invariably the case. So the initial rapper, I think, it helps one pass the stage. But there will be situations where the supervisor is too ambitious. It has happened with me also. Mm. right? And I found that the student is unable to cope up with it. Now, there are two options. We divert a little bit right, so that the student can handle the quantum of work and uh, such that it is commensurate right, for the award of the degree, whatever. There have been occasions where I've had to, in a very subtle manner, suggest to the research scholar that it would be better if he worked in another area where his capabilities would be better utilized than okay. working under me in an area where he's going to face a lot of problems. Because I've, I've seen students, you know, unable to cope up with the kind of problem I had in mind, right, when I see them struggling. So right at the onset, I make this suggestion and I help them find another supervisor so that they can uh, complete their work and uh, get the degree awarded to them. So what kind of what kind of problems in general? I mean, how do you identify that? I mean, for example, as a researcher, how can he, you know, identify that uh, he's facing certain, you know, setbacks or you know, uh, a kind of being yeah. unable to uh, work on the idea or being unable to understand it. He's struggling a bit, but he's making an effort, but he's still struggling it. As as a supervisor, how, and also as a researcher, what can he look? Like, how can he identify that? See, it's like this that, let us say I've given uh, the student a paper and asked him to go through it. After how many days should I expect him to come back to me and discuss it? This is like a question that, you know, doesn't uh, sort of yield a simple answer really. Yeah. It varies on the student, right? It could also vary on my assignments and um, things like that, my engagements. But in general, what happens is that I've had on occasion a student coming back the very next day and telling me what the problem he was facing, right? So then I would point out that, look, in order to understand this, you might like to go through a particular reference and this is it. And they would go back. So now, th that is a student, I'll say, with initiative, mm -hmm. right? And believe me, I would give that kind of student a lot of time. There would be others. They would come back after about three days, four mm -hmm. days, right? And yes, they'd have a big a list of specific areas where they face problem. Now, this is also a kind of student with initiative, right? 
So you know what are his specific areas where he's facing problems. He's taken his time. He's gone through the paper. He's, you know, sort of uh, underscored a few things and so on and so forth, scribbled across. You can tell he's made a genuine effort. And believe me, if a person makes a genuine effort, I'll go all out to help him. So these are the two I really look forward to. The other would be like, uh, come back after about a week, two days, three days, and uh, then start talking about generalizations. Right? There's no specific question he has. Hmm. There's no specific area of difficulty that he's mentioning. Hmm. Right? Then you feel that no, he hasn't gone through the paper. Okay. Right? And that breaks the trust, you know. It's a violation of trust. That's the way I look at it. Then it becomes difficult, you know. What about a student who is taking an initiative? Yeah. But uh, he is unable to, you know, comprehend the problem or being unable to rise up to the demands of the research. Yeah, it happens. What about the person who you might feel that maybe he can have a tough, really tough time working on it? Maybe he could do something, work on something else and maybe do a great work. Yeah, that, that, that's right. Uh, see, right at the initial stages, a supervisor is aware of the student's background. It means like what subjects he's taken, what his performance has been like. So, yeah, if I feel that a particular student may not, uh, is not able to cope up with the kind of problem I'm uh, giving him, then uh, stage one would be, you know, to see if there was an alternative area where the two of us, you know, could uh, sort of talk at the same frequency, hmm. right? So I would try and probe that. Because look, if uh, I ask a student to seek another supervisor, right, it uh, shatters a student's self-confidence, you know. And I, I never wanted to do that. I mean, if there was a change of supervisor, it was like discussed, etc., etc., right? A, a few number of times before the final decision was taken. And yes, there have been times where uh, I felt that st a student is unable to handle the problem, right? From my perspective, we digressed, right? And gave it more of a geotechnical thing rather than a structural uh, emphasis. Hmm. And the student did fine. So that kind of thing does happen. Yes, you're right. Now you have defined a problem and you're working on it. Right. So after one or one and a half years of your, you know, enrolling as a PhD student. Now what kind, what set of difficulties a student might face? You can say that he's unable to, not say unable to, but he's facing a set of difficulties because that's how a PhD work is. How to handle the part where you see that it's going nowhere or when you see that coping up with the demands of being in grad school and still this is about like third or fourth year. You you are still wondering where this is going. Yeah, you're right. Um, but by the third year, right, I would have expected that the student would have uh, presented or published papers at least two or three. And uh, I would encourage them to publish in 
to begin with in these uh, smaller conferences and symposia and things like that. Now, at that stage, if a student feels he's going nowhere, right, that means there has to be a lack of communication between the supervisor and the student. See, one of the biggest drawbacks, I think, with our mentality is we feel ashamed to ask, as if we are going to lose face or something, right? And I think the earlier we shed that kind of an image, you know, or misconception, it would be better for the whole community. I mean, I recollect way back from school, nobody asked questions. When the teacher said any questions, right, nobody had any questions, in spite of the fact that nobody understood also. But nobody had questions. Why? I don't want to be the lone fellow who sticks his hand up and says, Sir, excuse me, but how did we get that value? No, it, it would be very embarrassing for me. Right? And uh, I would uh, also hesitate because then the other uh, colleagues of mine, they'll think that I'm trying to uh, sort of uh, chummy up to the teacher, impress the teacher. Right? That's not true. But that is the general listing. And the same thing happened in undergraduate. No, nobody asked questions. Same thing in postgraduate. No, nobody asked questions. I'm guilty of that sometimes, I don't. <laughs> no, all of us. All of us. It's our mindset. You know what the Indian mindset is? Log kya kahenge. <laughs> I mean, like, it's my business here. And, and, you know, this was one of the biggest differences I found between students here and students in the UK. They wouldn't hesitate to ask, right? And that, that if the teacher was not comfortable answering it then, for whatever be the reason, he would say, you can meet me at such and such time or whatever. After the class, people would ask. And I took aerodynamics lab on two occasions, I think, the, the student never spared me. He, uh, one was the case in which I had to explain what damping was to him. And unless he, I tried different, you know, reasoning, different logic, different analogies to make him understand. And finally he got it, and then he traced back every analogy I gave so that he was crystal clear. Here, it, it has been very rare. I will say that in the 40 years, there have been questions. I, I won't deny that. There have been questions. And there have been people who ask in class. There have been people who ask after class. But, yes, the trend is changing. But the general listing, I will say, 90% of the people would hesitate to ask. As if, you know, it uh, reflects on the ignorance of the subject matter or whatever. No, that that's one misconception one needs to really get over. And like I said, that if you have a healthy rapport with your supervisor, it's a win-win situation for both. Because after all, a supervisor is not an enemy or something like that. He's like an elder brother, like a parent, whatever. And believe me, supervisors are always concerned about whoever's working with them. And even others. True. Right? It's a general listing in human beings to be able to care for each other. When animals have it, we come on, we have a lot more reasoning, right? And we also have, you know, the elements of humanity inbuilt into our system. So, 
I, I've never hesitated in asking anybody anything. Yeah, a person may be younger than me, he may be older than me. What difference does it make? It's a win-win situation, nothing to lose. So, yeah, that kind of a situation, you know, it can happen. The one you mentioned, that after three years or four years, a person doesn't know which direction he's going. The reason for uncertainties can be many. But then each source of uncertainty or frustration or whatever, right, will have to be dealt with, you know, appropriately. We, one cannot generalize. That's one cannot generalize. Yeah. There are times, you know, when uh, I find that a student who's reasonably doing well in class, uh, he suddenly, his performance degrades. And then you talk to him, you realize that, okay, family is facing hardships or something like that, mm -hmm. right? If you can just lend a ear to listen to what he has to say, it helps him a lot. Right. I've had many students come to me. Believe me, not that I could do much for them, but yeah, I listened to them. I could see that, uh, yeah, they felt relieved, you know, a big burden off their chest. And some of them, they still communicate. It's, it's, it's a very complex kind of a situation. It will vary from individual to individual, you know, uh, as far as the scholar goes, also vary from individual to individual, as far as the supervisors go. Yeah, it's, it's complex, but mm. it's not something that cannot be dealt with, you know. And when a person is down and out, I think what is necessary is to be able to motivate him to get back. For one, you know, it's like if a person says, I can, another person says, I can't, right? They are both right. Hmm. Because once you say, uh, you can't, that means you've already accepted defeat. And to bring such a person back into the mainstream, it takes a lot of effort on somebody's part, right? Because that individual who is concerned, right, or the person who feels he can't, is unable to, and somebody needs to help him back on his feet. In my whole career, I think there's been only one case I remember where a student left after attending for two years, but he left without a degree. That's sad. And then that's, that's life. Looking at life as an infinite game, I think so. Yeah, that's true. About integrity in research. Yes, I think that's a very relevant question, yeah. very important question. Integrity in research. These days, of course, we have so many software packages. Uh, in every field, not only. Yeah, in, true. Yeah. But uh, I'm talking about the ones that can, you know, sort of uh, check for plagiarism, mm. right? So it becomes easier to check for plagiarism. Earlier, we didn't have these softwares. It was just by sheer chance that people who stumbled across the same dissertation submitted by two individuals, totally uncorrelated individuals, geographically separated by so many countries and 
separated in time by two, three years, four years, five years. We had, I think we've had two, three cases in our campus also. It was just coincidence, I will say, that uh, the first time a thesis came, it was a Japanese thesis. It had come to one of the senior faculty members and he and a colleague of his, they examined that dissertation. It was recommended for the award of the degree. Then a few years later, an Indian university sent a thesis, similar sounding topic, and the previously uh, the previous Japanese thesis examiners, the senior uh, uh, gentleman, he didn't get it, but the associate he got it, right? So when it came to him, he recollected that he'd examined or uh, seen the same figures somewhere in the past. And fortunately, they had a copy. They compared it. The tables were the same. The figures were the same. Experimental setup was the same. And then they had no choice but to write to the university stating that this had been submitted earlier. And they sent uh, documentary evidence. The person who is doing it may stand to gain, I'll say if nobody is able to detect it. Of course, one loses a lot of face and, uh, you know, a lot of punitive action is taken against one if the matter is brought to light. But what is more important is that the individual stands to lose, is missing out on a learning opportunity, right, or making a breakthrough. You never know. So that an individual is harming himself more than anybody else. He's harming himself. Integrity is so important in research. I, I may, my results may be cockeyed, and if I'm presenting them honestly, and it is a deviation from the previous, somebody is going to point out what my mistake was. I stand to learn. Mm. I stand to gain. <laughs> when one talks about integrity in research, you know. <laughs> So the next question comes if the student has graduated and uh, he is going to, if he's going to take up an academic position. So assuming, or I say, he has had good experience about doing independent research. What do you think a new academic should look into when he's taking up a PhD student? When a person joins faculty, uh, these days, of course, there is a greater emphasis on number of research scholars, number of publications. Our time it wasn't like that. In fact, there were very few scholarships and so on and so forth. You'd have just the odd few, three or four research scholars, at least in our department. Subsequently, of course, the numbers kept increasing. But when taking a research scholar, the supervisor or the prospective supervisor needs to be careful about what that student's background is, what are his, like, what subjects he has studied, etc., right? And then try and gauge if that student would be able to work in his designated area. But then, when you look at it, there are so many other considerations. So, yeah. how, once you have a student with you, then how to go forward See, as no, a new academic? Yeah, normally what happens that the newer faculty 
they would prefer to continue along their own research work hmm. right and i see nothing wrong with it because once you've been deeper into a particular area you know what are the other aspects right or areas you can bifurcate into right or uh, areas that you would like to explore so you when you get a research scholar that gives you an opportunity to explore into those areas and uh, i think uh, it's a very natural kind of a thing so no guidance is necessary the newer faculty they know or rather the supervisors invariably know what they are looking for right what are the answers they are seeking in which specific area so that uh, is mostly going to depend on the research interest of the supervisor but selecting candidates let us just say i have a bunch of 10 candidates and i need to select one there would be uh, candidates from different institutions right the method of marking evaluation it differs you cannot break it down to a common denominator and compare so as a supervisor what i would look for is a certain amount of initiative does the candidate have that because many times what happens you ask a candidate right what he has done he'll be able to you know in a cut and dried manner tell you briefly what he has done but if you go into the details they are unable to answer any question now that uh, becomes slightly embarrassing mm-hmm. and that is not the kind of candidate you want i would prefer a candidate to say sir i i don't know i haven't done, gone into this but i've gone into this i concentrated on this area unfortunately i've not gone into this that integrity that honesty you know that initiative that is what we are looking for or, or at least that is what i would look for right right because that kind of a candidate is going to be an asset in the long run because right. we can have a mutual trust right from the beginning and that leads to a healthy teacher student relationship or supervisor and student relationship collaboration collaboration in research people are doing it yeah true so and still but collaboration i think it's very important it is important i i totally agree with you i mean research is not you know just just one individual trying to keep uh, reinventing wheels no uh it's like you know a community feeling because nobody is the alpha and the omega of any subject or any particular field and by collaborative research you know we can help each other grow what well, the tragedy is that uh, looking at uh, the scenario i find that ego conflicts are there uh, things like that and these are detrimental to any kind of a collaborative effort taking place and there are instances where of course collaborative research work has been fruitful i would i will not deny that but in general uh, that was uh, my experience that whenever there was talk of two institutions you know uh, sort of working on the same thing it, it was felt that uh, no we bifurcate the responsibility that means you have your idea and i have mine and you don't cross the uh, you know 
the line, so to say. Now, yeah, that's also one way of looking at collaborative research, right? But then one uh, uh, group is working with their strengths, other group is working with their strengths, right? But there is no give and take of any benefit. A task is there assigned, a task is completed, and there is the matter. So, definitely I would say that it would be better for uh, the community in general if uh, we have, uh, like, for, for example, the IITs, right? Then you have the uh, NITs and so on and so forth. So, if we can sort of uh, collaborate with uh, institutions in the vicinity, like, say, within the state uh, and so on and so forth, it would be uh, beneficial in so many ways. But then, uh, these are the days of intellectual property rights and God knows what all. So, there is a tendency to be, you know, very, very secretive about so many things. And that uh, sharing uh, that concept is, you know, more or less absent. It's more like, I have a facility, you want to use it, you pay for it. Hmm. Right? Okay, that's one way of looking at it. But yeah, definitely collaborative research, whether it's uh, national listing or uh, let us say at an international level, definitely is very, very helpful. At least uh, when I look back at my UK visit for research, I find that I stood at least in so many ways, so many different ways. And as far as academic this thing, I think I stood again a lot. Definitely it is beneficial to all. And it, you know, it would be uh, sort of uh, more an outcome of, let us say, a desire to help um, bring up the community, help the community to grow. That is important. So, any closing thoughts? Well, my one <laughs> word of advice to the research scholars is, right, or those who are doing research, uh, no matter at what stage, remember to take care of yourself, right? You're the most important person in your own life. As far as integrity goes, Keep make sure that that is one thing above everything else. And I wish you the best. Thank you for ending on a masterful note. It was a pleasure and an honor. Thanks for joining us. See you next week. This episode is sponsored by Rage Coffee, the makers of exquisite plant-based vitamin coffee. I enjoy Rage Coffee because it tastes clean, made with highest quality coffee beans infused with aromatic compounds and natural vitamins. For those of you who are coffee lovers and are conscious about your health, this is the best coffee recommendation I have for you.